Welcome to the Pause Purpose Play podcast with me, Michaela Thomas, clinical psychologist, couples therapist, and founder of The Thomas Connection. I help high-striving busy people let go of the pressure of perfection to create more joy, connection, and compassion in their lives. On this podcast, we promote balance of a burnout through giving you the permission to pause, the curiosity to find your purpose, and the courage to play. Welcome back to the Pause Purpose Play podcast with me, Michaela Thomas. Today we're going to think about body image. We're going to think about how we feel about our bodies, how we feel about the way we look. And we're going to think about the link between that and our self-esteem. What happens when you have a negative body image? When there are perhaps body changes happening in normal stages and ages of your life, perhaps going through pregnancy, childbirth, perhaps going through surgery. Maybe there's things about your appearance that has changed because of the pandemic. A lot of us put on weight. All of these things can make us have an inner critical dialogue, negative self-talk about what we see in the mirror or how you feel about your body. To my help today, I have psychotherapist Holly Rubin, who's going to guide us through what body image is and what it isn't, how we can boost it and how we can prevent the next generation of children growing up feeling more anxious about their body image through the way we already talk to ourselves as adults. So let's introduce my guest. Holly Rubin is a psychotherapist, body image specialist and mental health practitioner with over 25 years experience, where she's been commissioned by the Government Equalities Office and is part of the all-party parliamentary group on body image. In private practice, she offers support to couples, individuals, and parents and children. Holly is the head of wellbeing at the SOAK, a new and modern mental health facility in Chelsea, London. Holly has contributed to research in burn victims, the transgender population undergoing sex changes, and offers a wide range of knowledge in the body image world. Understanding when we are most vulnerable to experience body image issues, and how we can practically overcome negative body image are areas Holly focuses on. And that's what she's going to offer us today. We want to give a little word of caution though, that there are no quick fixes and five top tips to how we improve our body image and start to suddenly love our bodies. We want to make you aware of the complexity around this issue, around body image. So please listen to the end of the episode where I also will give you some tips around how to reach out for more support if you are affected by a very negative body image that's bringing you down, bringing down your self-esteem or giving rise to anxiety or depression. So let's welcome Holly to the podcast. Welcome to the Pause Purpose Play podcast, Holly. I'm really honoured to have you here and we've already kind of snuck into a conversation a little bit about body image, so we're going to carry that on during our nice chat today. So For those of you who don't know Holly, uh, you've heard the fantastic introduction I've already done. But Holly, tell the listeners a little bit more about why you're so passionate about body image and what kind of led you to that point in your career. Sure. Well, thank you for having me, Michaela. Um, I have had an interesting relationship with body image before it became a thing and before it even had a term, actually. Uh, I think it was just something, I mean, I grew up in a small community and lots of conversations in Montreal, Canada, 
close friends, close family. And it seemed that a lot of our conversations focused around the body. And we danced and we, a lot of us had an interest in fashion. And there seemed to be a connection between our physical selves and our emotions. And I, that was always something that was interesting to me. I think that's how it probably all began. I, um, I also actually had, I had an, an accident early on where I had a, I ended up with a scar at the corner of my mouth and I was only five and a half years old, but quite struck by, uh, the impact that that had on me and remembering looking at myself in the mirror post operation and, and having a, a reaction and a, a little bit of a concern about how I was going to be perceived after that. And, and thinking back on it now, it's quite amazing that my five and a half year old self was as tuned in to that at that time. And that got me researching and thinking and sort of the lens with which I began to view, view the world and view some issues that would come up. I have a very, very close friend of ours whose mother was diagnosed with cancer when we were just teenagers. And having watched her go through that diagnosis and then go through treatment, um, she was an incredibly vivacious and beautiful woman. Quite, um, Her physical appearance was quite important to her. And watching her recoil and watching that uh, element of her dwindle was, was also very, very poignant for me at the time. So those were a couple of examples. I have many more that I start to realize actually uh, focused me in terms of the desire to start to understand a little bit more about body image and about what that all means. And it's remarkable also connection there between the developmental age and stage that you were at when you were noticing that change in appearance with the scar and observing the world around you, observing someone who was battling such a severe illness. I guess that's also maybe the link that you also then have with the work you do around parenting. Yes, definitely. I, I'm really conscious and uh, aware of just how difficult it can sometimes be to parent uh, when we have our own, you know, when we have our own questions or our own concerns about our physical selves. And that's one of the things we're going to get into a little bit more today. Obviously, we're aware that not everyone is listening is a parent, but it's also about how you parent yourself and understanding the journey you've been through, how that shaped your body image and how you as an adult see your own physical appearance. So all of these things we're going to get into today, but let's kind of strip it right back. What does body image actually mean and why is that important? It's a really good question and a really good place to start because I think there are often misconceptions around what body image is. I think when we say that initially, people's reaction is, oh, well, it's just about how you look. It's just about vanity. But actually, it's not at all. Because the definition of body image, or my definition, is how we feel about how we look. So as soon as we bring in feelings, we're looking at subjectivity. We're looking at how we experience, how we feel about our physical appearance. It's not just about what we look like. What others see when they look at us, is very different than how we self-perceive. And why is that important for us to be aware of, the, the feelings we have about how we look? The importance around noticing how we feel about how we look is that, I mean, first of all, feelings are feelings, right? And they come and they go, and, and 
you know very well, as I do, that this is the work that we do. We work with people and we work with people's feelings and, and we work to help them understand their own feelings. Now, when we have feelings about our, our body, some of those are conscious, some of those are unconscious, but it's important to understand that that changes quite a bit also that now I know people talk about, oh, I had a bad body image day or I wasn't, I had a terrible hair day or whatever it is. But what I've learned through my research and through my experience is that it's really not about the bodies at all, right? It's about the feelings that we're having about ourselves. It's about the deeper inner world that we, that we have and that we exist in. So obviously feelings can be both positive and negative. So I guess that's something that comes up a lot in your work of seeing people with a negative body image. Mm -hmm. What are the causes of that and what maintains a negative body image once we've developed it? You know, I think there are many reasons, again, why we might result, you know, why one day might be a day. I really want to emphasize the transience too. I think it's really important to notice that, that these things are fluid and that body image it's important to view body image as well on a spectrum so that we're, we're looking at none, none of this is fixed, but there's so much pressure on us to look a certain way. I will say again, the emphasis on, uh, and the pressure on women is probably greater than it is on men. Although that has changing and certainly has been changing over the last five years or so, there's still, they're experiencing a lot of pressure as well, but historically speaking, the pressure on women to look a certain way, to fit in an incredibly narrow definition of what beauty is, all of that has put a lot of pressure. So yes, people do feel badly. They do feel a comparison needing to be made. They do wish, you know, their thighs looked a certain way, or they do wish, you know, their nose was more similar to a friend's, or there's a lot of comparison that happens. And Consequently, that leaves many people feeling bad about how they look. So that comparison, I guess, as therapists and psychologists, we might know can be unhelpful, but also we know that it does exist. A social comparison is an innate part of being human, that we will always look to our, our kin, we will always look to the next person. I guess in negative body image, we tend to also compare upwardly rather than downwardly. We tend to compare to people who are what we perceive more beautiful or more successful or more achieved, whatever it might be that we're having as a yardstick. Do you see that when it comes to appearance and feelings about our bodies as well, that sort of upward social comparison? Absolutely. I think that's probably at the heart of a lot of this, right? That, um, that there is a comparison being made with, again, the intention of um, unfortunately not feeling as good about ourselves. So that comparison of be that models or um, figures, you know, celebrities that we look at uh, on film, in magazines, and of course, now on social media, right? So we are ingesting this, we're constantly barraged with all of this imagery that we weren't before quite in the same way. And that gets inside us. And that, that, makes the comparison stronger and and more potent and unfortunately as you said in a negative way we're often not looking at somebody else and saying wow i look amazing or don't i look better than them no there's a comparison in an upward fashion and it says i'm not good enough i wish i were more like that and that's the bit that's really that's really difficult that requires some more conscious work around 
So how do we step out of that then? I mean, I, this is the million dollar question that you may not be able to give much wisdom on because it's a big societal problem that's bigger than the individual. But how do we as an individual look at these images and think about protecting our own body image, protecting our own self-esteem when we're looking at those mm-hmm. images that we being bombarded with? Great question. And yes, huge. So I think the first thing to think about is that, and I always like to start at this base base, which is this is not your fault. Okay. This is never your fault as an individual alone. As you've just mentioned, Michaela, this is a societal issue. This is something that is so much bigger than the individual. And these are messages that are passed on through the media, through big business, through the beauty industry, through the fashion industry. And all of those messages do get passed on to us and they do get absorbed consciously and unconsciously. And what's important is to be able to bring those to the fore and to be able to look at that a little bit and notice that that there is influence and that we are getting those messages for reasons and that there is incentive by big business to work on some of these areas that we may not feel so good about in an attempt to have us, you know, buy into this. I will say that what we can all do on an individual level is to be able to question that a little bit and to be able to look at the images that we see and be savvy around questioning and around saying, hang on a second, was this photoshopped? Was this not photoshopped? Have we facetuned this? How come there are not how come there's not a wrinkle in sight or not a, you know, not an imperfection there? That's not realistic. And I know the APA has done some work around advertising and around making sure that we as the consumers now know when something has been touched up. And I think all of that transparency, working towards transparency, is really important for us as regular humans to be able to see that all bodies have imperfections. There is no such thing as a perfect body. And that the emphasis and the the desire to have that actually is what we all need to understand a little bit more. So as part of it is getting insight and clarity around what goes on behind the scenes, the, the systems in place uh, in the media industry, in the, in the fashion industry, for instance, understanding retouching and how that works. And part of it is also being aware of your own inner world, what's going on within you when you look at those images. I mean, I've, I've made a conscious choice years ago to not look through glossy magazines anymore. And it's, it's really, really been helpful for my own journey. Not so that I avoid them uh, fully, but it's it's one of those things that I kind of looked at the function of it. How is this? Is it serving mm-hmm. me or is it actually doing me uh, a disservice when I look through them? Is it helpful or is it harmful? So one of the one of your really helpful points here that I, I want to reiterate to the listeners is understanding what works for you. You know, if you have a moment where you're looking at a magazine and it, you get all of these thoughts hooking you that you're not good enough, that you don't look like that. And it leaves you with feelings like inadequacy, you're feeling sad, feeling anxious. Maybe that's not so functional. Yeah. Yeah. Really good point. And I think also to be able to understand what the motivation is, right? So why, why are we looking at these things and what are they bringing to us? Like you're saying, what, what does it give us? And if it's not giving us something that's satisfying, or that it is, you know, it's making us feel uncomfortable, then we have to know when to when to close that or when to unfollow or when to do something so that we protect ourselves, not to the avoidance of but to understand the motivation behind things. I can see that as a, 
something in my own journey that I began my career prior to becoming a psychotherapist, I worked in the fashion industry. And that was really something that I was motivated to do because I love fabrics and I love textures and I love putting things together and I have a have a quite creative side to me. And I really wanted to go down that route. So I went to school, I did a year at FIT in New York City, and I learned uh, fashion buying and marketing. And then I, uh, I had the privilege of working or what I thought was the privilege at the time of working at a high end boutique in, um, in New York City. So I worked at Bergdorf Goodman in the buying office. And I really thought it was going to be a very different experience. But the thing that caught me the most was the conversations around bodies. And you had these, again, beautiful aesthetic, we worked in a beautiful office, uh, with incredible clothing, and uh, the buyers were very sophisticated in, in how all of this happened. And so everything looked a certain way from the outside, and you would go on the floor in the boutiques and you would just, it would just like fantasy. And then when you would go back to the buying office and you would hear the conversations that were being had amongst the buyers, it was, nobody was talking about positive things about their bodies. They were talking about their dissatisfaction and we were looking at their figures and uh, we would look at Excel spreadsheets and those figures. But the, the irony is that people were really addressing their discomfort within their own bodies, which to the outward, to the outside world, nobody would have picked up. And how did that leave you feeling when that was the kind of constant language around you? I think it was it was very difficult. I mean, there's no question at that time, I was I, I was in my early 20s. Um, there was a part of me that was very much uh, that looked the part and acted the part. I'm I'm slim i'm i'm quite uh not i'm quite short actually but i'm quite petite and that seemed to be there would often be a sample that i a sample size that i would fit and as a result you know i had a lot of interaction with the clothing and the things that i like to do so there were lots of benefits but what it left me with was this desire to understand more around the physical appearance and how we put ourselves together how we put ourselves out to the world and yet this disconnect between how we really internally were feeling because I had I had the backstory on that not only my own backstory but I had the backstory on everybody else's and that that's what propelled me to go and carry on my studies and do my masters uh, writing a little bit more about the uh, the conflict between our external and our internal worlds and how those come together and impact self-esteem and that's I mean that's really fascinating isn't it of how because you, in that moment, in your early 20s, because of, you know, the body shape you were in, you fitted that narrow definition, you fitted into the sample size. How do you think you would have felt had you not, if they would take a garment out and they just would not fit? Yeah, and what was so interesting about that is this happened, this happened to be a very, very high-end, not a boutique, but a department store that really when we looked at the size range and how we bought for for the uh the departments that we bought for it was incredibly limited so when looking at uh sizing in the US is very different than it is in the UK but like a, a size 0 we would buy from a size 0 up to a size 10 10 US 10 12 mm. maybe a 12 now a 12 US is the equivalent of like a 10 UK, I think, if I'm not mistaken. 
And that is a very small range, right? So you can see just in the way that we were buying the garments, they were not catering to all sizes, okay? We, we had a very specific narrow margin with which we were working in. And so even that in itself didn't seem like it made good, good business sense at the time, but, but that was the population that would come and shop there. So if I, ha- I, yeah, if I hadn't been that size or hadn't fit that size, it, it would definitely have made me feel uh, an outcast and made me feel um, more self-conscious for certain. Hence that link in your work and your research with self-esteem. Absolutely. How that impacts on how you feel about ourselves. What's been the most interesting findings you've had? Uh, if you would summarize a few things you found through your research. That there is a strong connection between how we feel about how we look and how we actually feel about who we are as people. So our overall general sense of self-esteem is impacted by our physical appearance and how we perceive our physical appearance. Again, this is not about others and how others perceive us, but it's about how we perceive ourselves. So I talked about the um, spectrum with which we are all on really around body body image and body acceptance. So it's really important to understand. I think it just lends importance to understanding how we are feeling about certain things so that we can address those feelings in as best a way as we possibly can without necessarily needing to to take that out, if you will, on our bodies, because that, that does tend to happen when we're not clear on how we feel about certain things. Unfortunately, the body is a, is a place where, um, where things can sometimes get acted out and acted out upon. And that I always, it always makes me feel bad to say that and to have come to understand that. And I guess there's a, that link between how you perceive your body and how you perceive your own worth is very, very interesting, isn't it? That we attach so much worth to our body's appearance and, and how we feel about that body. Um, so you, you talk about this range. I guess there's so much on, on social media talking about sort of body positivity, you know, self-love. Would you put that at the very sort of end of that spectrum of being able to go beyond accepting your body and, and actually loving your body? What's the, what's the polar opposite of that range? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think both spectrums are really... Um, the extremes, right? So we're not necessarily looking for this. I I don't think anyone exists on the complete ends of either of them where we're in complete bliss and denial about, you know, how we feel, nor are we hating things as well uh, at at the other end of the spectrum. But I'm curious more about where normal sort of lies, right? What is that? And and who are we in that space? But to, to answer that more clearly, I think it's about getting to a place we don't have to love, right? We don't have to love. I, I'm really quite interested in this idea of, of body neutrality, of getting to a place where we can just be and live from our bodies and that that is okay and that that's enough, right? Sometimes people experience this bo- body positivity concept as too much and not, uh, not realistic. And as a result, that leaves people feeling bad about where they are in their own journeys of body acceptance. And so I try to emphasize that it's not a pressure to get to a certain place. This is about coming to accept who you are in your body as you are right now. And that's powerful, I guess, because it's much more realistic and achievable for people to come to body neutrality than than body positivity. That's saying, I, I wake up every day, look in the mirror, I love what I see. 
that can feel like a very alien concept, certainly to the clients I work with who put a lot of pressure on themselves to be perfect and look perfect. We talked a lot about the sort of the pressure in society feeding into that, that this is not just an individual problem, this is a societal problem. But is there anything else we can do as adults to facilitate a more positive body image? Yes, there is. There always is. I think um, trying to take some of the emphasis off of how we appear and what we look like and shifting that mindset a little bit into recognizing all that our bodies do for us on a daily basis. So from the moment you, you, you take your feet and you put them on the floor to standing up, to being able to go you know, freely in this case, you know, if you are in an able-bodied, if you freely can move to the kitchen and to around your home, and if you can have the capacity to bend and pick up a child, if you have one, or to run for a bus, to, uh, to play tennis, to, to do things, if we can start to recognize just how much our bodies do do for us on a daily basis and to be grateful for all of that, even though it might seem little, but we do take these things for granted. And I think it's really important to recognize how much uh, our bodies do for us and, and how much thanks we need to have in order, you know, for them. So I guess sort of coming from a background of, of being in design and fashion yourself, I guess I think of design, what they say about form and function, that actually we get so hooked on the form that we forget about the function, that our bodies can do so many things for us and serve us so well but we get really preoccupied about what it looks like. Absolutely. So I, I like to call that function over form. I like to love it. recognize that it's funny, actually, even as I'm saying that, Michaela, I'm just thinking that we as therapists are working really hard around shifting the focus to being, right? Being in ourselves and being who we are, as opposed to the pressure that we often feel living in the world that we do to do to do, to be active, to be effective, to be, to be productive. I think these are things that we struggle with. Um, and it sounds like you're, many in your audience would do so as well. And yet, when we're looking at bodies, and we're looking at body image and shifting that focus a little bit, I'm asking you actually to look at the doing and to look at how important it is to look at the activity that our bodies provide us, as opposed to just being an ornament and us decorating ourselves. So I do see that that might be, you know, that that can be misconstrued, sometimes taking that emphasis off the productivity. But in this case of bodies, and in the case of um, allowing ourselves to appreciate who we are, it is a good thing to be able to recognize all that it does for us. It's really fascinating to think about this dichotomy between the being and the doing, because I often see that there's an element of productivity or doing when it comes to appearance as well, but it's not about the fo focusing on the function, it's the doing of the trying to remove the imperfections. You know, I'm doing all of these things to, I don't know, massage my skin with a jade roller or whatever it is that I see people do on social yeah. media. Um, the cleansing, the removing of hair, the all of these things, the preoccupation with the yeah. doing, that's very different to focusing on the doing of, of what can this do to serve me? What has my body done for me that's brought me joy? or brought me meaning. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. From, from your research point of view? Absolutely. Because again, you know, what is it that we're doing? Are we doing our bodies? Are we doing things ultimately to allow us to feel better about who we are? Because I think that that's the driving force, right? That if we do all these things and we 
buy all these creams and we use the latest technology laser to, you know, remove hair. Is that ultimately going to make us feel better? Because that's the driver, right? But if we stop to ask ourselves the question, is that what's going to help? I'm curious about what the answer would always be, because I'm not sure that that's getting necessarily getting at the heart of where the discomfort lies. I mean, it's making me think about the work I've done in cosmetic surgery or sometimes working with a surgeon around assessing this, the psychological needs of someone prior. So I'll work with some, some dermatologists. And if they are unsure as to whether uh, one of their patients is actually prepared or of sound enough mind, if you will, to go through with the procedure, they have now been um, mandated, actually many, to ensure that the client is well enough to do so. And that's been a very interesting and important thing to do because with clients who might be more severely uh, impacted, so may have a diagnosis of body dysmorphia, that internal question about, am I good enough, comes out in seeking, you know, cosmetic surgery procedures. And part of the concern is that if the initial reason to go in, and let's say it's for someone who's not happy with the appearance of their nose and they want to fix that that if it's that and i never i never have any judgment around whether people want to do these procedures or not i think this is all about choice what i do ask is that the person has actually done some work to determine whether this is really what they want and if the answer is yes then that's going to be then that's going to be a successful procedure if it's not well then perhaps there's more work to do internally before going to fix something, you know, in a cosmetic surgery uh, capacity. Because I guess that the risk is then that you're left with negative feelings after the procedure if it didn't give you that, you know, the emotional fix you were seeking to make you feel better about how you look or make the, um, make the worry about your imperfection go away, so to speak, quote unquote, then I guess it's interesting um, Results there research looking at people with body dysmorphia and, and cosmetic surgery procedures who are sometimes left feeling worse about that imperfection afterwards. Exactly. That is because really the reason behind that is that it wasn't an external fix that was needed. Yeah, it wasn't something that needed to be fixed on the outside. And there are many times where that is that is enough that that fix is what some what someone is looking for, which again is more than I have no issue with that as long as fixing one thing doesn't lead to the desire to fix something else and then to fix something else and then going back and forth. Constantly fixing the outside is not necessarily going to heal whatever is happening internally. And I guess that's your job there, not to pass judgment about people's reasons for doing it, but also understanding is this a healthy driver behind this and is this going to be helpful and serve you well or is this going to lead to further pursuit of perfection, further attempts to, to fix the inner side? Exactly. exactly. Yeah. So it's really powerful for the listeners to know that because people might wonder, why is there a psychological assessment when I'm trying to have a, a, you know, um, a medical procedure on the outside? Mm -hmm. I'm just, I just want to fix my nose. But this is the, the work of, of what psychologists do when they have these assessments to try to make sure that you don't regret the procedure afterwards and that this is 
based on the right motivation. So for anyone who doesn't know the term body dysmorphia, do you want to just explain that a bit more? Because it might have come up some questions for the listeners. Sure. So again, body dysmorphia is when somebody is um, is clinically struggling with how they look and how they think they look. So again, it's almost that perception of their their external their external selves. They do not see themselves the way other people do. So how they're perceived and how people experience them is very different from how they um, how they see themselves. So that definition is similar to what we what I talked about before in terms of body image. But again, if we look at that on a spectrum, we're looking at someone who's got a clinical diagnosis for an inability to see themselves realistically. So it's like seeing yourself in a funhouse mirror in some way. Yeah. So the perception has become skewed. Yes. And that's a mental health disturbance. Okay. So it's not sometimes, again, doesn't mean that if one day you go and you look at yourself in the mirror and you see something completely different and then the next day it's again, it's changed that those are those are normal, regular occurrences. But someone with a diagnosis of diagnosis of body dysmorphia is someone who's who has a mental health disturbance around their perception of their physical selves. Mm, and it's really important to acknowledge how, like you said in the beginning of our chat, that this is not about vanity. This is not about being self-obsessed or self-absorbed. This is a, you know, a real, very serious mental health condition that's very highly associated with depression and suicidal thoughts as well. Yes, absolutely. So uh, we've got to quite dark places here, but there's, this is a reality of what can happen for us humans when we have these feelings about our bodies. I guess bringing it slightly backwards in time then, because you mentioned in the beginning of how there's two, two examples of where you noticed your feelings about your body. And in your work with parents, and I'm wondering if we can think a little bit about how this starts, you know, why there might be a presence of a negative body image already in childhood. Really? Yeah. Um, interesting. I think I worked on a paper um, with, uh, we were commissioned by the Equalities Party um, at the time, about 2014, and I uh, co-authored a piece with Susie Orbach that was asked of us by the government at the time to talk about, well, it was called Two for the Price of One, and it was about body image during pregnancy and, and beyond. And so what we were addressing in that paper is just how much a mother's perception of herself and her own body gets transmitted onto the baby, even when they're actually carrying a baby. So this connection, this intergenerational transmission of body image, as we call it, is so potent that these ideas start really early on and they start with us. So how we manage our own experiences of our own physical selves is so important so that if there is negativity around that, and again, there's going to be a degree to that for, for all of us, how we navigate that and those feelings in an attempt to not have those feelings get transferred on to the newborn, to the child, to a growing child as well. All of those things are important to look out for. Can you give some examples of how that would be, you know, transferred from the mother to the baby? Sure. So again, if there were any, um, any sorts of feelings or any struggles that, that you had prior to being pregnant, sometimes being in a pregnant body 
uh, can bring up some of those emotions as well, watching those changes. And there are some people, again, who absolutely love being pregnant um, and have a very good experience doing so, and other people don't. And I think that's something, again, that we don't necessarily address or talk about. And, and it's really important to recognize that this is, it's not all black and white, right? That, that these things change and, and how we feel about our changing bodies changes as well. So some of that information gets transmitted based on how it is that we feel about our changing bodies as well. So if we have a negative view on that, um, I guess it can come out as negative self-talk or self-critical things that gets voiced, then there's a, a risk that the, the young child will, will absorb that and hear the way that, that their mother or their father is talking about their body image? That's directly and overtly. And even, even on an unconscious level, the things that we say to ourselves or the experiences that we have in our bodies because, because of the, you know, the fact that we're carrying a child or the fact, again, with, with young children, these things get picked up. Children are so incredibly perceptive and they do pick these things up, whether, whether we talk overtly or not. So that would be one tip I would have for the listeners as well, that, that when we have those experiences, be they in the very early days, or even if you have young children at home or teenagers at home, any time that we're interacting as a family or that we have children that we're taking care of, how we talk to ourselves and the ideas and the feelings that we have about ourselves quickly do get picked up by children. And to be able to find the appropriate time and space to have those feelings and to express them and to be able to do so freely is a really, really helps not just yourself, but it does help uh, your family as well and the people who you relate with. So it's almost like a double whammy of, of gain there that it's not only is it softening your inner critical dialogue that's going to serve you, but you're also potentially protecting your child from body anxiety from growing up in such an early early developmental stage already being aware of of negativity around body so there's there's a kind of there's two purposes there and for a lot of people listening they may find it difficult to find the motivation to say I'm doing it for myself because I deserve to be well or I deserve to uh, think better about myself I deserve to have a kinder internal language they might find that hard but a lot of parents would find oh actually I want to protect my child from this as a better way in is that something that you see in your work as well Absolutely, I do. And, and that's precisely why we actually called the paper two for the price of one, because we, we do get two generations in one when we take care of the pregnant mother. And when we take care of mother and child, there, there's a double generational hit that we get there, which is why it's so, again, so important and so useful. I do see this um, in my work with particularly when bodies are changing as much as they are. So during pregnancy, when children from the, uh, from the five-year-old stage, when they're separating from their families, uh, from their caretaker, be that mom or father or nanny, when there is a separation, how the child individuates in their own bodies, all of these different points, and then there's adolescence, these are big transitional times and bodies are changing, hormones are affected, and um, just the physiology is changing so much that there is going to be, uh, there are going to be questions around this and they, these can bring up more vulnerable, more vulnerable situations. So just having an awareness around that is incredibly helpful. Mm, it's something that we have to continue to have a dialogue around because there is a lot of gain there, not just for ourselves, but also for the next generation. So a lot of 
a lot of motivation for us to change the dialogue about our bodies. And I guess for anyone who's listening who is pregnant or who's gone through those body changes of giving birth, uh, being in the postpartum period, you know, what, what kind of tips can you give them for talking to themselves more kindly about those body changes? Again, I, I think that trying to pull back and recognize where you are and recognize uh, what you're doing and what your body is doing and the fact that you are protecting protecting and building and raising and growing a little person inside you, if you can sort of shift the mind to think about what's actually happening as opposed to perhaps being frustrated with some of the body changes or, you know, stretch marks or the differences with how you're carrying yourself or the expansion of your legs. Um, All of that is happening as a consequence, a consequence of an incredible thing, which is the fact that you're having a baby. So we forget, of course, we forget we're human and we're tired. So at those stages, it's really important to just pause for a moment, give yourself the opportunity to take a breath and to and to pause for a moment and to reflect as well on some of those things uh, will make will make the journey that much easier. I love that because it's much more realistic as well, you knowing that we will get this hooking us again, because again, society tells us that women should be small, uh, that women should by all means have children, but look like they haven't. So I think that's kind of acknowledging that no wonder in these moments, at times when I'm tired, I'm going to be hooked by these thoughts and then how I can soften it by saying, actually, I grew a placenta, you know, actually I'm, I'm facilitating to make milk. There's a lot of these things that are um, difficult to remember on a day-to-day basis when you might then be flooded with images of pregnant women. I reflected on this the other day of how there seems to be no third trimester pregnant women in any of the fashion catalogues or places where you can order clothes for pregnant women. They seem to all have very, very small bumps. So I don't know if pregnant women in the media just hide for the last 12 weeks of their pregnancy so we don't see them. But that's also, it does mean that we don't normalize how the body changes and how big the bump is at the very last stage. Absolutely. And, and, uh, and the reasons for that, right? And the fact is that everybody does carry differently. So even in a pregnant body, there were, there was an idealized view of how to carry, right? And it was this desired all up front and from the back, nobody wanted to be perceived as though they were pregnant. That was those were messages that were were there. Uh, I know for me, at least, you know, 20 years ago, that was when I when I was first pregnant, uh, I have a 19 year old. So when I was first pregnant with mine, this idea of their needing to be a specific body look for a pregnant woman and, and talk about pressure. I mean, did we all, you know, all we're doing is trying to feed into something that we are thinking is the right way to carry, which there is absolutely no such thing. So there is a lot of pressure and it starts really early on. Mm. And something we absolutely have no control over because your body is exactly. building new organs, your body is building a new, a new life form. You have no control of how your body is going to carry that. It's also to do with your own body shape. I mean, this is obviously uh, a little while ago for you, but I'm 35 weeks pregnant with my second as we're speaking. So it's very relevant, relevant for me. And it's, it's sad mm. to say that these comments still exist. The pressure uh, is still there for someone who is quite petite in, in size. I'm 5'2". I will obviously then carry quite big, as in there's nowhere for the bump to go but but out. Mm-hmm. And the comments you get, it's very hard to sort of stand back, be kind of compassionate to yourself. Actually, no, these are just 
societal pressures that don't say anything about my worth. But it, it can be really difficult when you get comments like, oh, you must be due any day when you're 26 weeks pregnant. Um, yeah. it, it can be really hard. So we kind of circling back to where we started before we started recording today, which talking about how things have been so different because of the pandemic, because of the lack of face-to-face contact of how you know, people have been struggling to perhaps release images of themselves being pregnant when you don't have this gradual buildup of your, the growing of the bump. It's felt difficult for me personally to share images on social media or, you know, with friends and family because it's been sort of then become so capsulated. Here's this one image of what you look like. Whereas if you're spending time with people in person, it's 3D rather than 2D. So I wonder if it's a final thought, if you have any kind of thoughts around how the the pandemic has impacted the way we see our bodies? I think the pandemic has had a very um, significant impact on how we view our bodies. Our activity levels have changed. Many of us working from home on a screen, not necessarily being as active as we had been prior when we were moving from place to place or commuting. Perhaps our food choices as well have been impacted. Um, how we're dressing, we're wanting to feel more comfortable if we're at home and at least from the from the top up. And there has been, uh, you brought something up before, a word that I think is important to address, which is around control. Mm-hmm. And um, not only do we, you know, have we no control when our bodies are changing as pregnant, uh, as pregnant people, but control is often something that comes up when we talk about bodies and feelings and uh, what happens as a result that we're all in different bodies and we're all, we all look different and we're all made up genetically very different. So to be able to um, try to control that is actually something that's not useful or helpful at all. So our bodies are going to get back to the natural set point that it's meant to get to, regardless of Um, the restricting that sometimes people might do or the diets that people might try, that I think it's very important to acknowledge the uh, piece of control that does exist with bodies too. Mm. And I guess that could lead us into another hour's conversation about the attempts that we have to to control our bodies and what the body also wants in terms of equilibrium and our you know, our innate different sizes. So it's a lot of things we can continue talking about, but we have to draw things to a close. And it's been so helpful to talk to you. Um, I may have to bring you onto the podcast again, because we've not even touched upon uh, your expertise around relationships as well. But bringing things to a close, kind of thinking about that we said about sort of pausing, taking a breath, kind of looking at standing back from these things. Is there anything else that you do in your life to pause, to switch off, to, to kind of get yourself more balance? Yes, I do. I think mornings for me are a real time of pause. As much as I am a morning person and I wake up with the energy to get going for the day, I am really aware of how my mornings start. And I do take a breath and pause for myself and spend some time meditating before my day, just some downtime before everything gets busy with kids and family and dog and and food prep and work and whatnot. So it's really helpful for me to pause at the start of the day and and feel get get to feel slightly more grounded before the world begins Mm -hmm. that's beautiful start as you mean to go on i suppose creating that little pocket of calm for yourself we've talked quite Mm -hmm. a lot about things relating to purpose you know why you're so passionate about the work you do and the research you've carried out but let's think about playfulness you know 
these are some of the serious topics we talked about today. Some of it is very dark, some of it is relating to mental health difficulties. How do you find playfulness and joy and, you know, that kind of lightheartedness maybe in your work or outside of your work? Yes, so important. As you said, as much as these are very serious topics, so important to approach things with humor and to surround, I love to surround myself with people who do have a good sense of humor. And I'm so lucky to be able to do that. Colleagues and friends, animals. I have a a dog with, who's a therapy dog, actually. Her name is Marley and she comes to work with me. Um, when I'm working in person, uh, where I lead up the well division section for the SOAK, which is a new mental health facility, she comes along and she, uh, she accompanies us, uh, myself and she's there for clients too. So that little bit of levity too helps people connect and feel calm. Um, and she definitely does that. Amazing. So thank you so much for sharing all of that wisdom. I'm sure it's given food for thought to the listeners. As a final takeaway, what would you like to give the listeners? Either a permission to give them or a pressure to take off them? Yeah, um, I think I would say as cliche as it might sound, I think it's never bad to be reminded that really nothing is perfect and that it's about finding your own definition and your own version of perfection. Hmm. So kind of embracing what you think is beautiful would be very different to what someone else thinks is beautiful. And luckily, otherwise, we would all have to look exactly the same to be uh, desired and adored. And we don't, you know, so that's the beauty is in the eye of the beholder and all of those things. I can't thank you enough for this chat. It's been lovely. Thank you so much for talking to me on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the end of this episode, talking about some quite serious topics around body image and imperfections. It can be really hard to be kind to yourself about what you see in the mirror. We have to be careful with using labels here. In this episode, Holly and I talked about a diagnostic term called body dysmorphic disorder or body dysmorphia. Now, that doesn't affect that many people in the population, but when it does, it can be very severe and disabling. That is not the same as being a little bit dissatisfied with parts of your body. So, body dysmorphia is more when we are feeling disabled by it to the point where We cannot leave the house. We can't engage socially with other people. We constantly feel we have to hide and camouflage this perceived defect or flaw in our appearance. And despite the amount of reassurance you might receive from others that you look great, you look fine, there's nothing wrong with this body part, you still can't quite shake it. So it's much more pervasive than I don't feel great about my hair today. So if you want to read more about that, you can Google body dysmorphic disorder or body dysmorphia and make sure you read trusted websites like the NHS websites or other places where you can understand more about this condition. Don't suffer with this alone. There is treatment to receive. If you are dissatisfied with your appearance to the point where it's affecting your relationships or affecting your self-esteem, remember that we can also help you. My team can support you with psychological therapy if you need it. Don't suffer alone. The NHS also offers free therapy for people who need help with these conditions that can also give rise to anxiety and depression and it can be hard to know that this is the underlying cause. So speak to your GP or self-refer to an IAP service, an IAPT or Improving Access to Psychological Therapies. If you or someone you know is struggling, then do reach out for help. 
Now with that said, that was a serious part of this episode. All of us will at some point or other question the way we look. It's just built into our society, like Holly and I said in this episode, to at times be negative about what we see in the mirror. So if you've got some ideas or tips from this episode, great. Please share them with other people. Tell people on social media what you appreciated about this episode, what you've learned that helps more people discover what we talk about on this podcast. Everything about living life light and dark, the highs and the lows. And when you share this on social media, it might be that someone else who's been struggling with their appearance learns something new and can take that one step closer to therapy or speaking to their family members or friends about it. So do us a favour, share this episode, rate and review the podcast, do things to make it more visible to others who also need these little nuggets of psychology. And until I speak to you next time, please do take care of yourself. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode. I know it's not easy when you feel busy and overwhelmed to find time for another thing to do. If this is you, if you feel overwhelmed or that you are close to your breaking point, then I've got a downloadable checklist for you that's going to help. This checklist is called Calm the Overwhelm. The first section has signs and symptoms of you being overwhelmed mentally or physically, showing you that you might be close to breaking point or burning out. The second part is actionable, easy things you can do to try to slow down and give yourself a break. And the third part is a checklist of all the things that might show up when you're asking yourself to take a break. Perhaps your inner critical voice will have an opinion about why you're not allowed to give yourself the permission to pause. To download this free resource, go to www.thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash calm. So that's thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash calm. This episode of the Pause Purpose Play podcast was presented by me, Michaela Thomas, and you can find me on thethomasconnection.co.uk. And because great work rests on having a great team, this episode was kindly edited by Emily Crosby Media.